Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So last week uh, we talked uh, about, or I talked uh, about the uh, the power that medicine has today related to our ability through respirators and dialysis, <coughs> transplantation, total parenteral feeding, etc., to actually keep someone alive, <coughs> what seems like in many cases indefinitely, and that uh, it was our obligation as uh, physicians to control what's an amazing amount of power by recognizing that <clears throat> the person at the other end of that respirator or that dialysis or that transplant is a human being with all the desires, hopes, fears that you and I all share together as human beings. So I wanted to to take just a few minutes to sort of set Barbara up by talking about how one in medicine and you as lay people can actually have some control over that uh, power that's been generated in the in the last century. So there's a concept between the sick person and the dying person. Now, people have been sick for a long time. I mean, all the way back through recorded history, we talked about sickness. But it was interesting. It wasn't really defined until 1951 by a person uh, called Parsons, his last name. And he defined the sick role by certain rights and responsibilities. And... It was interesting, and I actually ran across this article maybe one or two years into practice. I did not, nobody taught me this during medical school. I use it all the time now, teaching my residents and, and students. Uh, so he defined the, the sick role as rights and responsibilities. <clears throat> so if you think about when you're sick, what are your rights? You exempt, you're exempted from some are all normal responsibilities. So that if you're sick, you have permission to stay home. You're exemptive of the responsibilities. And you don't lose your, your, your place in society. So we hold your job uh, uh, while you're uh, 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 sick. And you're held blameless for the condition. So modern man does not blame you for the illness that you have. Not always true uh, in ancient society, in some societies today, that say, you know, if you're ill, then it's because some evil spirit, something you've done that has brought that on you. And of course, you know, you one could say the same thing today, but we don't. You know, if, you're, if you get pneumonia because you're a smoker, one could say, you know, but we still treat you 
and you're still held blameless for your condition, and you have the you're exempted from all some from some all normal responsibilities. But with all rights come uh, with all rights come responsibilities, and what you the responsibility when you're sick is you're expected to want to get well as soon as possible. That is, you want to get well so you can resume your normal responsibilities, those things that we have exempted you from and held your place in society. So you're expected to want to get back as soon as you can and to seek appropriate help and cooperate with that help no matter how onerous it might be. So if you have appendicitis, a sickness, you're expected to undergo the surgery to get well. If you have a curable cancer, you're expected to undergo the surgery and the chemotherapy that will get you well, if it's curable. Uh, in spite of the fact that that chemotherapy could be particularly onerous. <clears throat> but that's your expectations, that's your responsibilities when you're sick. The dying role was defined about 20 years later using the same kind of uh, idea. And it was actually defined by a, a professor at uh, UAB in 1976. And he defined it the same way, rights and responsibilities. So if you are dying, you're exempted from normal responsibility. Not surprising. You don't have to go to work. And you're held blameless for the condition. Again, you may be dying of a lung cancer because you smoked for 50 years, but you're still, at least in our society, held blameless for the condition. The responsibilities change dramatically, and that's a big deal. <clears throat> so you're no longer expected to get well. You can't. And therefore, you no longer are expected to seek help or cooperate or accept onerous therapy. So I, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of times in my 30 years of practice that I have gently moved a patient from the sick role where she did had to, had, was expected to cooperate with that onerous therapy into the dying role where she was relieved of having to undergo that onerous therapy. And nine out of 10 times, you can just see the sense of relief that comes over the patient who's been undergoing this burdensome therapy for months or years and is now relieved of that burdensome therapy. So sick role, responsible to get well and cooperate with the help. Dying row, no longer responsible for seeking help or cooperating with the onerous recommendations. And that's actually muddling the sick and the dying row is our problem today, both from the standpoint of medicine, where we muddle the row, and you, as the lay public, families that are interacting with the medical profession and muddle the role. So how do we know? 
How do we know when you move, when you should move from the sick to the dying row? Well, you move from the sick to the dying row when nothing more can be done to restore health. That is, your condition cannot be reversed. It cannot be cured. We cannot restore your health. And we know that. We know when we've reached that state at least 95% of the time in medicine. It's not a real mystery. In most cases, we know. So when nothing more can be done to restore health or prolong life in a manner that's acceptable to the patient and maintains dignity, well-being, and humanity. So first, can health be restored? Yes or no? Yes, you're sick, you get treated. No, you're dying. Next question, can life be prolonged? If the answer is no, then by definition, anything is futile. We can neither restore your health nor prolong your life. And if the answer is yes, we can prolong your life, then the next question is, can we maintain your dignity, well-being, and humanity? And is what we're proposing to prolong your life acceptable to you? So that requires a discussion. That requires a frank discussion that says, here's what we can do. We can give you six months. We can give you three months. Here's the burden. Here's what what you will have to undergo to get that six months, and it's now your decision. Tougher, dis tougher discussion for a physician, tougher discussion for a patient, but critical. It's truth-telling. You have to lay it out there so that we can make a decision together whether or not it should be done. I, a physician cannot force a patient into the dying row. You can just say that that's where we are. And you say it gently, lovingly. Obviously, you already have a relationship established with the, with the patient. And so, you, you know, what, what I do is I say, you know, I'm, I can't cure it. I can't prolong your life. But I'm going to be here with you. I'm going to be your friend. Our relationship actually changes a little bit. I'm not just your physician. I'm really your friend at this point. And I really can't do any more than a friend can. Clergy, friends, family. And they do three things. There's three things that I can do at that point. It's care, company, and comfort. So three things. Uh, I like to think of that as love. So, uh, in this book, when someone you love is dying, it's interesting. I ran across this, or Barbara showed it to me. <clears throat> so, surely we can do more for our loved one than end her life. This follows a little discussion on 
physician-assisted suicide. We can do what's more difficult. We can stand with her in her hour of death. If the sting of death is sin, Paul Ramsey says, the sting of dying is solitude. Desertion is more choking than death and more feared. The chief problem of dying is how not to die alone. Turning from futile attempts to cure does not mean we're doing nothing. We turn from what's useless to what's useful. And that's caring for the dying. And so let me stop here and bring Barbara up. Uh, who is an expert at caring for the dying. <laughs> Only because she's got the biggest heart I've ever seen, which is exactly what it takes, is care, company, and comfort. But not being able to speak in public, <laughs> for sure. Okay, today we've uh, entered into the valley of the shadow of death. But we will not be traveling alone because the Holy Spirit is always with us. And there is always light in the darkness that cannot be overcome. And that is God himself. In Romans 8, 6, it says, The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. And there is a verse in Galatians 4 that says, Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And I found something that Martin Luther had to say about this passage. And here, here's what Paul could have said. God has sent the spirit of his son into us to pray, Abba, Father. But he purposefully says, calls out to indicate the anguish of the Christian who is still weak and needs to grow in the faith. But in the middle of trials and conflicts, it's difficult to call out to God. And it takes a lot of effort to cling to God's words. And at those times, we cannot perceive Christ. We do not see him. Our heart does not feel his presence and his help during the attack. All this raises very powerful and horrible shouts against us so that there does not appear to be anything left but despair and eternal death. However, in the middle of these terrors of the law, the thundering of sin, the shaking of death, and the roar of the devil, the Holy Spirit in our hearts begin to crawl out, to call out, Abba, Father, and his cry is much stronger and drowns out the powerful and horrible shouts of the law, sin, death, and the devil. It penetrates through the clouds in heaven and reaches up to the ears of God. I cannot uh, talk to you today about death and dying without speaking about suffering, which is, I think, the hardest thing maybe in Christianity to, to come to grips with. But we live under a human conviction that a pleasant life is our due. Now, the missionary community in Nicaragua is very excited about a, a book by Larry Crabb called Shattered Dreams. And my suitcase was full of them a, couple, a few weeks ago when uh, I went down because, you know, I had all these orders to bring and 
things to bring to them. But I want to present some of the thoughts of this book to you to see what you think. Because Crabb says that the mother of all shattered dreams is the pursuit of shatterproof hope in the here and now. And Paul writes to the Colossian Christians, For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, which comes from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. As Christians, we are to believe God when he promises to work both everything that happens in our lives and everything that happens in our souls for the good of people who love God and who surrender to however he wants to use them in, his li- in this life. And this is called faith. We are not to use people to make ourselves feel better. We are not to isolate ourselves either from people who might hurt us. We are to give whatever is alive and good within ourselves to be blessings to others. And that's called love. And it comes with a cost to ourselves. This faith and love comes from our hope. And our hope is not for full satisfaction in life now. But it's for what God promises us when we get home. God and this hurt me to find it out, was not, is not particularly interested in our comfort in this world. In this life, there is death, disease, and hunger, all kinds of discouragement. And then there's pure evil, too. God does not want us to cling to false hope that the happiness that we were created to enjoy is for the here and now in this world. Because God allows suffering. And a large part of our anguish is rooted in the fact that we are not in control of what happens to us in life. It's a little taste of death. And we are afraid to think about being absolutely helpless in the hands of God. We like to think when trouble comes that we can maintain some control and take steps and adopt attitudes to alleviate the pain and then we'll return to being happy. But when real trouble comes, there is no human help whatsoever. And only God can fix us and remove, you know, our anguish and move and be powerful within it. In Exodus, it, it is written, Then you will know that I am your Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the, the yoke. Frederick Beekner writes in a room called Remember, The world is full of dark shadows, to be sure, both the world without and the world within. And the road we've all set off on is long and hard and often hard to find. But the word is trust. Trust the deepest intuitions of your own heart. Trust the source of your own truest gladness. Trust the road. Above all else, trust him. Trust him. I remember what John Claypool said about finding a way through this life of darkness by living a life of thankfulness. And I remember a a sermon he preached uh, once about old age. It's on one of his tapes that I've listened to a million times. And how after being born, we're 
we are we learn and we master all these skills you know we learn to uh, move around we learn to eat we learn to walk we learn to talk we learn to think and in old age we are some of us asked to give these things back he said that there was hope in making of each loss a sacrifice back to God being thankful that we ever had these abilities at all. Now, I want to read a passage that he wrote that I love in, uh, in his book, A Room Call Remember, which is one of my top ten. Uh, Even 40 years ago, let alone 10, I knew that like everyone else, I would die someday. And in my mind, I had already died many times. I had never had an ache or a pain that wasn't fatal or an illness that wasn't terminal. And one of the occupational hazards of being a writer of fiction is to have an imagination as overdeveloped as a blacksmith's right arm. Again and again, I've watched the doctor pause for a way to break the tragic news to me. I've lain in a hospital bed receiving the final visits of friends. I have said goodbye to my wife and children for the last time. I have attended my own funeral. There is something to be said for such nonsense. For one thing, to have the doctor tell you that it is not lung cancer after all, but just a touch of the flu, is in a way to be born again. For another thing, it is to be given back, not just your old life again, but your old life with a new sense of its pricelessness. At least for a time, old grievances, disappointments, irritations, failure that had cast a shadow over your day suddenly cease to matter much, and you are alive. That's all that matters, and the sheer wonder and grace of it are staggering. The sense of life as gift and the sense of the pricelessness of each moment, too. Even the most humdrum. The taste of fresh bread. The trip to pick up the laundry. The walk with a friend. They were nearly taken away for good. Someday they will be taken away for good, indeed. But in the meantime, they are yours. Treasure them for what they will not be forever. Treasure them for what, except by God's grace... They may never have been at all. I spent three days and nights with a little Nicaraguan girl named Anita a few uh, weeks ago. Now, Lauren's friend Michelle started the first school for the handicapped children in Nicaragua. Before then, no child with disabilities was able to attend the school. And I can remember hearing her plans for just trying to find a house to rent for getting this school going, maybe, when we were sitting in plastic chairs in the back of a pickup truck in the rain with hitchhikers hanging on to the tailgate as we drove up the mountain, and she was thinking small. God gave her a building and land and a stable and a horse and for horse therapy and a staff and real teachers and therapists and a board of directors even, and 70 students go there now. Our church has given some support to this school, and our youth team who visited Nicaragua in July, I think, took the whole school to a water park for the day. Some of the kids might even remember Anita. She's 10 years old. She was born with severe cerebral palsy. She looks like one of my granddaughters, but she is so small 
and when I touched her, I could not believe how rigid she was. She cannot move herself in any way. She has difficulty swallowing. She cannot talk. She listens and she watches. And when you look at her, she smiles at you. Every time. And what we have to be thankful for in comparison to her life and her abilities seems enormous. But I'm not sure that any of us have ever experienced the joy she feels when someone plays with her or when she sees a lizard crawling up the wall. She laughs. She looks at you she, with so much love and happiness. She's just a gift from God. And in seeing her, I realize that the person who is totally impaired, physically, emotionally, and mentally, may be the one who is truly alive, while the person who seems to be doing everything right and have everything together may be bound for destruction. God wants to bless us, but he does not work in our ways, and we do not understand his ways. He uses suffering and the shattering of our lower dreams to lead us into the deep places of our soul. And it is in the darkness that we discover our longing for him. And there is a hole in our hearts, in our souls, and in everything we are that cannot be filled by anything but him. And in the darkness, we know that. Not just the desire for the good things we still want, just like they were, just like they were before an encounter with God himself. There was a poem that I studied in the ninth grade, and I'll have to call that English class my enlightenment because it just opened my heart and it opened my mind. But there was a, a book called The Prophet. I know you all know it by Khalil Gibran. And he had a, a poem that was called Joy and Sorrow. And it said that the deeper that, joy, that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. Sorrow is the teacher and not joy. Joy is wonderful. It's God's kiss to you, but it's not the teacher. Mike Mason, in his book called The Gospel According to Job, says of Jesus, his work is to lead us out of ourselves, out of the stale confines of our minds, land into the arena of mystery and of spirit, of tears and of blood, of thunder <coughs> and of the great silence of God. His work is to engage our souls in that most terrifying of all human ventures, trust. I would like to tell you the great stories of the people I worked with in hospice. Each one was a parable in itself, but there's no time. I can only tell you these things. I was aware as I came to a new house and a new patient that I was entering holy ground and that there was something for me to learn from that person and something for me to give to them in God's name. There was always an exchange because of the seriousness of the moment. And this, this exchange, they came to either they were, because doctors had not given them to hospice in time, they were, then they would not be able to, but, but if they were awake, 
they were fully awake to this experience and maybe awake for the first times in their lives to understand. Some were paralyzed with fear, some were quiet with anger, and some were sad because of the broken relationships of their lives. For one, it was struggling to get a hole patched in his roof, which hospice could not fix. And I could only be present. I could bring him food. I could take his caregiver, who was his sister, to the grocery store, and I could help her clean his house. And uh, I could do those things. But I was witness to what God did to move him from the physical worries about his roof over a few months to hearing of his conversation with Jesus one night. When Jesus came, he said, with his mother, and stood at his bedside and asked him, Johnny, are you ready to come home? Are you tired? And Johnny said, yes. And he died the next week in peace and in salvation. One dear woman wanted to have her hair cut and styled just one last time. She said, I just want to feel normal one time. So we climbed into the shower and, and I washed her hair. And because my mama had been a, a beautician, I knew how to do hair. And we got her hair dryer out and we... And I'd fixed him dinner, and I sat the table pretty and, and did those things for her and got her all fixed up. And she and her husband, who had not been very loving to her in her lifetime, sat down and had a dinner. And uh, God gave them this moment towards forgiveness. One man wanted to have his toenails cut because the sheets hurt his long toenails, and they were big and yellow and thick and nasty. And the hospice nurses, uh, they're not allowed to cut toenails because it's, I guess, dangerous. I don't know. And then uh, they had gotten in contact with a podiatrist who would not come, who never, you know, promised and then never came. Uh, as a volunteer, you can do anything. Though. You can get away with stuff. So, uh I went to the drugstore and I bought the biggest, strongest. I mean, they could cut a house down. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I, I had these. He ranted and he raved about how he was planning to kill his doctor. He was going to the, to the uh, parking lot in Princeton Hospital with his knife. And when this doctor came out, he was going to stab him and kill him because this doctor had done surgery on his back and, and it hadn't found the cancer and now it was not in time. Well, the thing he didn't say was that his, uh, he had left his wife before this happened who had Parkinson's disease. She was, she was pitiful. And he had taken up with two really cute young women and they were those same ages as his daughter, and they had gotten all his money, and they were gone. And now his wife had moved in to this one-room government-issue apartment to take care of him for the rest of his life. And uh, that day, I remember, I gave him uh, his first foot washing, and I gave her one, too. One day, the hospice nurse and I happened to be visiting him at the same time. And he was so agitated that day. He was almost screaming. And he looked at me and he said, I'm going to die. 
I'm going to die. Can you believe that? I'm going to die. And, I, and before I could even stop myself, which is very common, I shot back at him. What, did you really think you weren't? <laughs> because I've thought about death every day that I live. I mean, there's I just always have. I've, I saw it when I was early in life, and I just have always thought about it. Cried all the way home from my grandparents' house down in the country every time I came home. Looked back at them knowing I might never see them again. I've always been very aware of death. But boy, the nurse, she just stopped what she's doing, sat down, <laughs> put her hand on her head and shook and could not wait to get back to, to the hospice office to tell everybody what I had said. But in time, I saw this man move from anger, disbelief of his death to remorse and thankfulness for, to his wife and his daughters for taking care of him. And he died with the family. You know, I mean, I'm not saying things come together always because it was raveled, but there was some forgiveness there. And one of his daughters quit her job. She had a family, quit her job, and went back to nursing school to become a hospice nurse because she saw what it, what could be there, what could be there for that for patients in that condition. Well, only God can move people when they are stuck. He's the only one that can change situations. And he can do this even during dying. There's no other. There's no other. Dying is a time when you draw out of your savings account upon what beliefs you have secured over a lifetime. What do you know of God? What do you believe about Jesus and the resurrection? What wisdom and faith has the Holy Spirit written on your heart? And what is your hope of heaven? And all this faith has to be deposited while you are busy and hurried in life with so many worries and things to do. So it's something you have to take time to do. It has to be the priority of your life. Christianity is a religion of hope. And it is a faith that is always looking forward. And for a Christian, the best is yet to be. I want Ed to read the Billy Graham, did you bring it? Thing that was in the paper this this week. I don't know if y'all saw it. It is amazing. And just what we were talking about. So this is this is uh, this is Billy Graham's Dear Abby column type of thing, I think. So th this is a question. I'm in the hospital, broken hip, and the doctor says I can't live on my own anymore, but must go into a nursing home. I can't face it. I've been independent all my life. My children live in other cities. And I can't go live with them. Why is God doing this to me? Miss E. MacD. Losing our independence as we grow older is hard. This is Billy's answer. And it's especially hard if we've been used to doing almost anything we wanted to do. But no matter who we are and how self-reliant we've been, eventually we'll lose our independence if we live long enough.
Do you remember Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest disciples? Before he met Jesus, Peter was a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. Strong, independent, willing to take risk, used to running his own business. And that independent streak never completely left him. Often, for example, Peter was the first to speak out. And when Jesus was arrested, Peter impetuously drew his sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. But one day, Jesus warned Peter, You'll grow old and lose your independence. He said, When you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you. John 21:18. Don't be angry at God because you're facing problems. They are part of life. And God has not abandoned you. Instead, be thankful for every day he gives you and ask him to help you adjust to your situation and even be a blessing to others. Most of all, fix your eyes on heaven. Life is brief, but eternity is forever. Put your life into Christ's hands and thank him for the hope we have of heaven because of his death and resurrection for us. And I think that's a major, major, major advantage that we have over the rest of the world. That Christians know, know that this is just brief. A brief, brief, brief period of time in all of eternity. And we've both seen it play out in watching a great Christian go through the last steps of life, do it gracefully, gently, with their family at their side, other Christians who believe the same thing that they do. It's really important. It's really important that all of us <clears throat> take time to think about Take time to think about <clears throat> that period of time that we'll all go through, either ourselves, obviously, in every case, but also with friends and family and other loved ones. Uh, when it's good, it's pretty special. <clears throat> pretty special. I've seen it. Gil has seen it, I'm sure. Barbara's seen it. Uh, so we're close to the end, or at, at the end, but we'll be ta we'll happy to take any burning questions someone might have. Ed, when you talk to your students, your residents about these matters, how do they respond? Uh, I'm just kind of curious if they feel. Resistant. I, I don't think so much medical training is so clinical and cut and dry and all that business. So you're introducing a different dimension into their practice. Right? Yeah, but an important dimension. <coughs> and uh, I think if they, you know, if they take it in and it becomes part of who they are and what they are, uh, they embrace it. 
and I feel like most of the fellows who are the, you know, the GYN oncologists that I have a lot of time with, when they go out into the world, they really do a good job with it. I also tell them, you know, the other thing, I tell the first year medical students, I get, have, get, are able to give this lecture really on the first or second day of medical school. And, and uh, <clears throat> I'll, uh, I'll tell them that one of the most important things they can do is they have to read, even if they're not Christian, they have to read theology and philosophy they have to get out of science because if they just stay embedded in science, they will always think they have a hammer and a nail and got to use it. So the only way, the only way to be a good physician is to bury yourself in the other part of life, the spiritual part, without any question. But that's for all of us. If we bury ourselves in our work, if we bury ourselves in what we do every day, we have no chance. So it's it's important. It's just that I think death makes it poignant. Uh, but you know, life's just as poignant in its own kind of way. And Ed, is there pressure on you with all the um, restrictions on Christians to um, speak about Christianity, whether it be the military or the medical field or whatever? Is do you find any pressure on you not to bring up some of these these issues? Uh, there's no overt pressure. Uh, there's subtle pressure. I ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. You know, I've got a Bible and a prayer book sitting on my desk, and you know, I've got people in there all the time from all walks of life, and I don't know what they think, and I don't care. <laughs> I need that sitting there. Well, Barbara? <laughs> well, let us close. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this life that you've given us. We are particularly thankful for the resurrection of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, that lets us hang to the everlasting hope that you are there for us, that you have a room ready for us and those we love. We thank you for that. We thank you for all of these people that have joined us, Barbara and I, uh, today. We ask that you bless them and that you look after them and give them peace and hope in their future and the life to come. Amen. Amen.